Before 2035, I am pretty confident we'll have multiple commercial demonstrations up and running. In the U.S., we already have demonstrations operating in in Russia, in China, but in the U.S., ones that, that we would build, very confident that we will have several different designs before 2035. What a nuclear power plant basically is the way to boil water, right? Using an extremely complicated process. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Earthlings podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Roseland. I'm a writer, a policy analyst, and an energy wonk. Are you wonky, Christian? Is that what you're saying? Some days I'm wonkier than others, but yeah. Today we got a wonky day coming for you. (laughs) Super wonky, Uh, but we're going to make it fun. I'm Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I was an award-winning NPR reporter for for PBS. I did environmental science work, and now I run PR for clean tech companies with Technica Communications and support my ladies with women in clean tech and sustainability. But today I'm here with Christian doing this podcast. And we wanted to take a moment and say, uh, if you like what we're doing here at the Earthlings Podcast, please consider following us on social media, subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're on there. And uh, we just really appreciate you and look forward to seeing you in the interwebs. Or also, I want to give you the option of not following us. We will still appreciate you. We appreciate you listening. So today we're tackling one of those questions that has divided families and ended friendships and started, you know, Twitter battles. Uh, And that is the question of what we do and how we use nuclear power. Do we keep it? Do we get rid of it? Do we wait around hundreds of years for it to be a viable solution? Do we build more nuclear reactors and nuclear power plants? And I think this gets down to a fundamental question. Do the benefits outweigh the challenges, costs, and risks? Should we deploy nuclear power at a scale large enough to decarbonize our energy mix or not? To nuclear or not to nuclear, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to decarbonize with nuclear energy or suffer the slings and arrows of variable renewables and with baseload generation to end. You think I could have played Hamlet? I think you did play Hamlet. <laughs> I did play Hamlet. That, that, was, my, that was my first life. It uh, <laughs> <That> was theater. <laughs> so we've both thought a lot about this question. There are a lot of concerns that we have, uh, but there's also some really strong upsides to nuclear power. It's this mm-hmm. nearly inexhaustible form of extremely dense energy. And when you talk to nuclear proponents, it sounds like nuclear could solve all of our energy problems. Well, there's no carbon involved, right? So if we're looking to decarbonize our world and uh, nuclear power holds a lot of benefits there, but also, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are pretty skeptical. Anytime somebody says, this is your solution to all your problems, I'm instantly skeptical of that. Bullshit radar goes right up. Um, And then, of course, we haven't really figured out what to do with the nuclear waste, And how long are we going to wait and how many billions of dollars are we going to spend on the potential of nuclear power? And yet there have been some really remarkable developments recently, particularly around fusion technology. And just in the last few months, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, investors have poured billions of dollars into private companies doing fusion. As of last November, uh, Nature reported that there was $2.4 billion that had been invested into fusion companies. Wow. I wish I had $2.4 billion. 
Yeah. And, and even more since then, right? Uh-huh. So, so let's take a step back because you and I know a bit about nuclear energy, but perhaps uh, people listening uh, might need a quick uh, primer. So let's, let's start with fusion. Right. How do you define it? Okay, so fusion, think about fusing two things together, in this case, two atoms. But before we talk about fusion, let's talk about fission. Because mm -hmm. all of the nuclear reactors operating in the world today and producing power that are cooked up to the electrical grid work on fission technology. And fission technology is where you take a fairly large atom and you break it apart into smaller atoms and you get a whole bunch of energy. Some of the thing, atoms you break it into are unstable. Fusion technology works where you fuse two atoms together. In this case, taking hydrogen atoms and fusing them together to form helium. Incidentally, that's what our sun does. So fusion, fission, very different, right? Fission, we figured out how to do that. We've been doing that for a while. We have a bunch of nuclear reactors that do it. Clearly, there's problems with fission. Fusion, wow nearly inexhaustible form, just huge amounts of potential energy. But so far, it takes temperatures like we have in the sun. And it's just simply technically much, much harder to do. So we're not anywhere near where we are with fission with fusion. Okay, that's, that's a great explanation. Thank you very much. Recently, there were some developments with fusion technology especially in Europe. So what did you find out about that? Sure. A few weeks ago, a team of European scientists smashed the record for a sustained fusion reaction. They produced energy for, drum roll please, more than five seconds. Now, I know this sounds a little bit anticlimactic, but keep in mind, this is more than twice the previous record. And, and it's also, you know, there've been a string of advances recently, some of them having to do with supermagnets, you know, other ways of doing fusion. So they've, they've been making these sort of technical advances. And I think that mm -hmm. when you consider the tremendous potential of fusion, any of these things that move the needle closer, you know, people get really excited about it because you know, it's a big deal. So, so they went from two seconds to five seconds. So they doubled their output. Yes. Now they have to actually build a new machine, a new Taurus, to <laughs> get it more, you know, because... Okay, keep in mind, we're working with temperatures hotter than the sun here. So, you know, this is a remarkable technical feat to do this. Yeah. So they did it and they more than doubled their output. So that's that's something. And uh, I guess we'll wait for them to build the next machine to sustain this energy even longer. Yeah. So this is always the question that comes up when we talk nuclear power, especially advanced technologies like fusion. What's the timeline for deployment? Yeah, well, we've heard, it depends on who you talk to. There's some people who are talking about some very ambitious timelines. But I think if you talk to, say, the scientists in this joint European project or, you know, other more mainstream sources, we're still hearing, you know, this is a decade minimum off before we have an operating fusion reactor, let alone a fleet of fusion reactors. So, you know, they're talking about we could have a reactor as soon as 2035. 2035. Yeah. Wow. And how many more millions of dollars are we going to have to put into it to get to that point? 
Millions. Um, it's almost <laughs> millions. <laughs> just millions of billions, quadrillions. <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like nuclear power is like owning a boat. It's a hole in the water you throw money into. <laughs> and I mean, I get all the potential benefits. I totally do. And we'll get later on in the show. We'll talk about some of those. So I'm not, you know, wholesale against nuclear energy. I'm just hyper-focused on the now eight years that we have to turn back the worst effects of climate change before we very possibly have some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The loop. um, Feedback loops. Feedback loops. Thank you. And I'm not super keen on waiting around to find out what those are. So sometimes I feel like these billions upon billions of dollars could be spent to great effect with technologies that we have available today and are ready for deployment that can very quickly uh, transition our energy grid to one that does not emit carbon. Sure. So, you know, we could talk about some of the other technologies and, you know, you and I could go back and forth for a long time Mm -hmm. and we have, but today we're going to do something different. We interviewed some experts who know more than we do. The first voice that you heard at the top of the hour was Dr. Jessica Lovering. She's an extremely knowledgeable proponent of nuclear power. The second voice that you heard was M.V. Ramana, who's an equally well-informed and passionate critic of nuclear. And at the end, we're going to have a seasoned electricity industry professional give his take. So to start off, we'll have Dr. Lovering, ladies first, and she's going to give us the case for nuclear power. She is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Good Energy Collective, was a director of energy at the Breakthrough Institute and hails from Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, um, a lot's changed, um, but some things are the same. So (laughs) um, we have really starting in the mid-2000s, there's sort of this, what was called the nuclear renaissance, which was the idea that we're going to have a lot more nuclear builds, even in the U.S. Uh, and the focus was really on um, what are called generation three plus reactors. So those are quite similar to the nuclear that we've been building for 40 years, these large um, water-cooled reactors. So the ones, you know, the U.S. has about 100 of these operating around the country. So generation three plus um, have a lot of improvements in terms of safety, uh, performance, economics, but they're technology-wise, they're pretty similar. They're still water-cooled. They're still quite large. Um, so if you've seen uh, like the Westinghouse AP1000, which is under construction in Georgia um, at the Vogel Project, that is a Generation 3 plus reactor. So, an, you know, incremental improvement over um, existing nuclear technologies. Now, we've also seen a big boom in uh, what we call advanced reactors. So that's really an umbrella term that encompasses a lot of things. Um, So when I say advanced nuclear, that includes a lot of technologies that are not water-cooled. So we'd say non-light water reactor designs, Um, but also it includes small modular reactors, SMRs, which can be water-cooled. So they can be quite similar technology-wise to the large reactors that we have operating today. They're just a lot smaller, one, but also because they're smaller, you can get a lot more um, factory fabrication or modular fabrication. So the hope is that 
while the technology is quite similar, um, they can be a better business case. So faster to build. And also you can add them in smaller increments. You don't have to, you know, construct something for 10 years and then you get one gigawatt all at once. Um, SMRs, the, the cutoff is anything under 300 megawatts. Um, and you can also have SMRs that are, are not water cooled. So, when we talk about um, those other things in advanced reactors, those non-light water reactors, there's a lot of things in there. So some things that people might have heard of are, are molten salt or thorium-fueled reactors, um, but there's also high-temperature gas-cooled reactors. Um, we have a lot more experience operating gas-cooled reactors around the world. Um, there's also metal-cooled reactors. Um, so metal is often um, sodium is a really common design, or molten lead um, is another one. And so those are kind of the, the range of different things. Um, for all of those, um, particularly the, the molten salt and the metal cooled, a big attribute is that um, they operate at sort of ambient pressures. So when we talk about these new nuclear technologies being developed, which of the, which of the ones, what's the most exciting one for you and why? Um, okay, so I think the most exciting one to me, um, I'm really interested in micro reactors. So micro, um, I define it as anything under 10 megawatts. And there's this company in the U.S. Um, that actually submitted their combined operating license to the regulator in the U.S. Um, the company is called Oaklo. And their reactor is 1.5 megawatts electric. So that is very small. If you're used to thinking about nuclear, it's about the size in terms of rated capacity of a large wind turbine. Um, and it fits in about like one to two shipping containers. And it also is designed to operate for um, like 15 years without refueling. Um, so you can kind of think of it more like a battery where you get the reactor shipped to you fully fueled and, and sealed. You just plug it in when it gets there and it runs for 15, 20 years, and then you send it back to be decommissioned and, and refueled at, at a central facility. So it's a very – what I'm excited is that it's a very different model for how to do nuclear, and it opens up a lot of different markets, a lot of different business cases, um, a lot of different communities to nuclear. So something I looked at in my dissertation was microreactors for off-grid and microgrid applications, particularly in old places like um, – the Canadian Arctic, there's a lot of communities that are off-grid, diesel-dependent. Um, so right now they're paying a lot for electricity, um, and their electricity is also very polluting because um, it's diesel, 100% diesel. Um, so if you could have a microreactor that's cost-competitive with diesel, that's just a win-win because you um, eliminate all that air pollution, that big public health impact for those communities, and also reduce their electricity costs significantly. So um, that's sort of that niche market that could be really great for microreactors. Um, and then eventually, if you build enough, you might be able to bring the cost down to where, you know, say a community in California um, who wants to have ownership of their um, electricity generation could buy a microreactor. Yeah, okay. And um, you, you, you've talked about how you focus a lot on the community side of things and, and you know, where we can place some of these new designs. Uh, why do you think communities would welcome some of these new technologies and these new nuclear designs, and why would they be excited to host them? 
Yeah, so it's not going to be, you know, everywhere. Um, we're going to have to find um, communities that are more um, amenable to nuclear, but also interested in kind of the opportunity of building a first of a kind. So let me give you one example that I think makes sense to people of where we might see some of these first builds. So um, we're looking at um, what a coal to SMR repowering program looks like. So um, there's a lot of communities in the U.S. that are seeing their coal power plants retire in sort of the next five to 10 years. That's really great from a climate perspective, but it's really devastating to the local communities um, that not only have these large power plants where a lot of people work, but typically also there's a mine um, in the vicinity that powers that coal power plant. So they're looking at a huge loss of jobs, tax revenue. Um, so a coal power plant site is actually a good location to build a new nuclear project because you can take advantage of a lot of the infrastructure like power lines, um, railroad lines, um, water source if it's a, a water-cooled reactor. Um, so that could be a real um, sort of win-win. Um, and the community might be very interested in having a new power plant built on the same site because um, it provides a lot of a lot of jobs and also very similar jobs, you know, um, you know, operating a power plant um, and also a guarantee that those jobs stay local, unlike some of these, you know, worker retraining programs that are a little more vague. Um, nuclear power typically employs more people per unit of capacity and also has higher salaries. So that could be very attractive to these communities um, and may even, you know, hopefully could possibly accelerate closure of some of these coal plants if people feel like there's a better option out there that has, you know, reduces their public health burden, increases their jobs and salaries um, in the local community. So, so that seems like a very promising pathway. Yeah, definitely. Um, to get back to these SMRs, so when could we expect to see the first SMR online in the United States? What's the so drop? the the closest one, the one that's going through um, New Scale, which is a, a 50 megawatt SMR out of Oregon State, um, they got their design review, but now they need to do their operating license, um, and they are looking at um, their. We're originally going to start construction in 2027, and now they're looking at 2029, um, and that's because their their customer pushed that timeline back. So they could actually they could be ready to build in 2027 um, if there's a if there's a someone who wants to. But their first project is really looking at starting construction in 2029, and that's um, in Idaho, providing power to um, a consortia of municipal utilities in Utah. Um, so that's sort of the timeline there. Um, it could be sooner if they find a, a different customer or another customer, um, but that's kind of the timeline. And that's because they're, I mean, one issue there is that um, while their reactor is only 50 megawatts, um, their power plant is designed um, to have multiple units, so like a six-pack or a 12-pack of these smaller reactors. So you take advantage of the, sort of the factory fabrication of the reactor unit, but then you string them together into what is more of a traditional size power plant, so sort of this 300 to 700 megawatt range, um, which is a really good replacement size for coal plants um, and much more on the on the utility scale for, for power generation. But the you know, project is much bigger, more complicated, 
um, and could be harder to build. Whereas the reason some of these um, advanced reactors look like they're going to maybe be demonstrated sooner is that, like, particularly for Oaklo, you know, 1.5 megawatts, there's only so much that can cost, even if it's quite expensive per unit because it's so small. Um, and so they can look at much shorter timelines for doing their first build, uh, even if it's, you know, completely bespoke, um, not factory fabricated. Um, it could still be quite fast because it's so small. So much information there from Dr. Lovering. There's clearly a lot of activity mm. in this space, lots of advanced R&D going on, and also more deployment of the advanced designs than I knew about. That was like drinking from fire hose. I really appreciate that she took the time to walk us through all that. And, you know, with so many billions of dollars being invested in this space, I, I am excited to see how it grows and which of these different types of technologies really come out as the clear, scalable winners. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's also, I think she's one of the more effective communicators for nuclear mm -hmm. power that I've met. And, and she's not alone. You know, certainly Bill Gates has played an important role and also some of the climate scientists, people like uh, Dr. James Hansen. He's, some of his uh, data about renewables could get updated. Just, But, you know, certainly they've been more effective in putting, uh, telling yeah. the story of nuclear than some of the other more severe voices. Um, Bill Gates, yes, I think he's great. And he's really added, I think, to a lot of the hype. But, you know, sometimes that's what an industry needs is is uh, a big forward thinker like that with a lot of credibility and a lot of money, frankly, to shine a spotlight on the potential uh, coming out of the industry. And, you know, from a PR perspective, being that that's what I do, I think the industry in general has always had a challenge communicating its value and benefits because so many people are fearful of the supposed the dangers uh, that can come with nuclear energy. And they haven't always been successful, but I think moving into the energy transition, I think there's an opportunity for them to to establish a new message, um, one that where they're not in competition with renewables. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see that happen. I, I, well, we've been starting to see that happen over the last few years. and But I think that's also been a shift by the nuclear, by nuclear proponents to, uh, instead of bashing renewables, to look for ways that the two can work together and can complement each other. And I think that that's, you know, that's definitely been a shift in the approach right. of advocates. Yeah, because what turns people off is when nuclear proponents are like, it's the holy grail, it's going to save everything, and everything else is shit. Yep. Like, you should only look at nuclear. Yep. And I think that's, that's where you lose people, this holy grail. Yeah, and, you know, I like that about what Dr. Lovering had to say, because instead of approaching this as one big holy grail— She's talking about all these different designs that are being developed, all these different approaches and the combinations of different approaches, which I'd never thought about it in that way before. And it becomes, instead of the Holy Grail, it becomes this iterative process moving forward. Yeah, I never considered the island communities that are dependent on diesel fuel, which still, to me, boggles my mind that that's still a thing. And these remote applications, never considered that. So to me, that's interesting. But also, I can think the other side of it is, well, are those too niche of applications? So the, so the technology is actually not going to be scalable to that. I mean, that's why, like you mentioned, you know, we've talked about so, sort of the, the billions of dollars that are thrown into this industry all the time and economics being one of the big, biggest challenges for nuclear energy across history. 
Yeah. The economics has not really ever worked out, right? It's always more expensive than people anticipate, takes longer than they anticipate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and do we really have the luxury of time? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's a really significant question. As we mentioned earlier, the IPCC says we have to reduce global emissions 50% by 2030, or we lose the window to stay below 1.5C. And eight years just isn't much time when you talk about nuclear development. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> oh, and we haven't even spoken about the waste part, which since Yucca Mountain, you know, what, what's going on with that? I don't know. We'll find out. I think we talked to another guest later on that, that covers that. So, but right now we have a good segue here into our next guest, who is MV Ramana. And he's a physicist who works at the Nuclear Futures Laboratory and uh, the Program on Science and Global Security, both at Princeton University. To start with, let's get a broad overview of all of the new nuclear technologies that advocates of nuclear power are talking about, the molten salt reactors, the small modular reactors. And I understand there's some overlap between these technologies. But in terms of these concepts, which of these has the most promise for, if any, for uh, near-term mass commercial deployment? Um, the simple answer is none of them. Um, and um, if you had to pick a winner, so to say, if you want to think about something that might actually be deployed, uh, it would probably be one of these small modular reactor designs that are based on light water reactors, which are the most prevalent uh, nuclear reactor design around the world. And so what you're talking about are basically scaled down versions of large reactors that are already extinct, albeit with some design differences. And uh, these are the only ones which I can see being uh, deployed any time in the next decade to a decade and a half. Uh, but uh, the reason I said no is because I don't see any of them being deployed uh, at a mass level. You can probably have a few niche projects, uh, <coughs> excuse me, which might be uh, uh, deployed over the next you know, couple of uh, decades because there's a lot of government support for these things in many countries, and they will like to see something being uh, built. But I don't see these becoming commercially viable anytime. So are we going to have to wait for another 20, 30 years? It's always, it seems to me like some of these new technologies are always constantly 15, 20 years out. Yes. So why? What is what is the big challenge? Small modular reactors. Obviously, we've been doing light water reactors for a while. Yes. Uh, all the nuclear advocates point out that the cost is the problem, that they're one-offs. And so they say if we can just mass produce them and, you know, repeat them, build them in, in this modular way, much similar to the way that solar is built, that this would address the cost challenge. So what's the what's the catch? What's the difficulty? Yeah, the catch is the small. So in the case of small modular reactors, what you're trying to do is to go to smaller sizes so that the, expect, the expectation is that the overall cost will be smaller. So instead of spending planning for a project that's costing $28 billion, maybe you're thinking about a project, according to the proponents, they will say 2 to $3 billion, but I would say probably more like $10 billion. Right? That's just my uh, take on that. But anyway, so it's a smaller chunk of uh, money compared to the amount that you have to invest in a large reactor. However, the amount of electricity that you would be generating for the same uh, for the cost would be much more than uh, lower by the same proportion. To put it differently, 
when I go from a, let's say, a 200 megawatt reactor to a 1000 megawatt reactor, uh, I am generating five times as much electricity in the 1000 megawatt reactor case. In other words, I'm getting five times as much revenue from selling electricity. However, the cost of construction is not five times as much. That's because you don't require five times as much concrete or require five times as many workers to be operating that plant. So the costs are actually not going to be five times as much large. This is what they call economies of scale, right? And when you go to small modular reactors, you're losing out on these economies of scale. Now, the proponents for small modular reactors uh, would say that uh, we can try to make up for that by doing mass manufacture in factories, learning, and so on and so forth. Now, there are two problems there. Uh, the first problem is that uh, if you just assume that the, these things are going to uh, be, uh, there is going to be some kind of learning and some cost reduction, you can try to estimate what is the most optimistic numbers of reactors you have to construct before you meet the, the small reactors match up with large reactors in terms of cost per unit of uh, electricity uh, generated. And uh, that numbers tends to be several hundred to several thousands uh, of reactors. In other words, I have to build uh, about several hundred to several thousand loss leaders initially before I can actually try to make up for the losses of economies of scale, right? And the question is, who's going to buy those first few thousand odd reactors, right? Uh, that's the first question. The second is, you can also look at the historical experience. These numbers about, you know, learning and so on are theoretical numbers, that these kinds of expectations were present even in the earliest decades of the nuclear project, of the nuclear age. And people have always been saying, oh, as we build more and more reactors, we're going to come down in cost. You know, what's interesting about this is I feel like we're getting to the issue of complexity here. Mm -hmm. It seems like the complexity of these nuclear designs is sort of their natural enemy. So I think that's an inherent feature of nuclear power, right? You are trying what – what a nuclear power plant basically is, is a way to boil water, right, using an extremely complicated process, right? And it's a process that you have to control because any kind of escape of radioactive materials from this reactor is going to be deadly, right, literally, to for thousands of years, uh, and so this is, you know, your, it is necessarily a very complicated technology. Just because you can draw a picture which looks very neat on a PowerPoint slide does not mean that the inside of the reactor is actually simple. It's very complicated, and there's just no escaping that. Which, you know, I think it brings up a good point. I, I appreciate that you're sort of putting it into this context, because at the end of the day, why then do governments keep spending money on nuclear when we could be putting that money in a better place, you know, I think like they consistently want to spend money on R&D. What is the benefit there? That's a great question. <laughs> you know, historically, what the nuclear energy industry has said is, look, you know, we are not the nuclear weapons industry. Don't confuse this. This is why there's a lot of negative public opinion. We are all about producing peaceful nuclear energy. It goes back to atoms for peace, right? Eisenhower's proposal, right? They're just trying to, uh, this distinction that they're trying to make. Now you fast forward to 2017. All right. And in the United States, you saw a rash of reports. Uh, and the most prominent of them was one that came out of, I forget the name of the group, but this is the group that Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary, joined after he left, after the end of the Obama administration, and then Trump took over. Right. And the first report they came out with said something along the lines of nuclear energy is, you know, national security imperative. Right. 
And the argument they make is that you need to invest in nuclear power because that's what allows us to run our nuclear submarines and have people going there and have jobs for them when they come out of the nuclear Navy. And, you know, all this, you know, crossovers between the military uses of the nuclear energy and the peaceful use of nuclear energy. That's all an important component. The same thing we saw in the United Kingdom, uh, where, you know, everybody was and their brother could clearly see that Hinkley Point was going to be a major failure, right? They were they were going to offering them costs just twice what the market was paying for electricity. And the people who studied this uh, are people at the University of Sussex. And uh, they basically document that there was a lot of talk about how this was necessary for refurbishing the Trident nuclear submarine, right? There's a lot of crossover between these two industries, and one subsidizes the other, right? And depending on which one is sort of at the more uh, troubled end of it, you will use the other one as your argument. Absolutely. You're exactly, you're reading my mind as I'm sitting here listening to you. And uh, my question is, at what point does it actually become worth it in the 21st century for, to, to invest in nuclear and build nuclear power plants? My opinion, it's, you know, we've, we've learned enough in the last 70 odd years to know that it is not worth it, right? So in the 21st century, we've come a long way with a lot of other technologies. Uh, now let me put the sort of give the benefit of the doubt. Right. So there is a point at which you might say we might need nuclear power. Right. And I'll give the best case forward for for nuclear power, which is that right now. So let me step back and ask the question. So what do we mean by saying we need nuclear power or we need this kind of energy? Right. To decide what kind of energy system we need, you have to set some boundaries, some constraints on the system. Right. So I guess from given that, uh, you know, the name of your podcast and what we sort of talked about before, this podcast would take the risk of climate change very seriously, right? Uh, and that being one of the risks. So if you put that as a constraint and saying we need to reduce emissions, and that's the constraint in which you're trying to come up with an energy system for the 21st century, then the answer today is fairly obvious. We need to expand renewables very rapidly. And, you know, that's really should be the goal right now. Well, I think it's pretty clear where MV Ramana stands in terms of nuclear energy. Yes, it is. <laughs> no ambiguity there. No, no. But he, he also brings a lot of context to this conversation. And there's a lot of things in there that we don't normally talk about that I feel that are important for understanding nuclear power. Mm. Oh, yeah. You mean like uh, that it's basically boiling water with extra steps? <laughs> yeah, it's the most sophisticated, complicated way to spin a turbine. Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's like, it's almost like the old timey way of making electricity. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's possibly the most sophisticated thing that we've ever done as a species. And then we run a steam turbine. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's, but it's great and it's going to save the planet. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the time and money that it takes to build nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. The latest news from the Vogel, I hope I'm saying that right, Vogel nuclear power plant in Georgia is now looking like it's going to cost nearly $30 billion, with a B. And it is already six or seven years past its initial start date. Oh, my gosh. Six or seven years. Can you imagine? Like, where would we be if we missed our deadline by years, six decades? Six years. I, you know. <laughs> Sorry. It's not going to get that to you for six years. This project, it's going to be delayed. I don't even mm -hmm. know how to think about projects going over on that kind of time scale. 
Yeah, and thirty billion dollars, we can use that number. But like, what? How? I, it's, I think it's hard for the human brain to even understand how much money that is. Well, for a two point two gigawatt reactor, I think I worked that out the other day. More than fourteen dollars per watt, which wow. is yeah. I mean, I guess some rooftop solar. No, no, rooftop solar is three fifty watt. Yeah, it's it's a whole lot of money. I you know. Now, to be clear, if you just talk about the per watt, you're not talking about the capacity. Blah, 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 blah. Energy wonk alert. Wonky. Wonk, wonky alert. Talk. Wonk alert. I'm just saying it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> well, <laughs> and maybe, okay, so this is what I'm thinking. Maybe the case for nuclear power isn't actually today on Earth. Maybe it's, maybe it's to power space. And, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, we'll have like EVs dominating the road and we'll need a lot more power anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then this abundant non-carbon source is, it looks a lot more attractive. Absolutely. You know, another application is hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. If we're going to use hydrogen to make steel, spoiler alert, we're doing an episode on green steel and do other heavy industrial processes. Or fly airplanes, spoiler alert, we got one on that too coming up. Yeah, you're going to need a whole lot of energy to make hydrogen. You know, right now, if we're talking about doing it with renewables, we're talking about a whole lot more renewables because electrolysis isn't, a, you know, it, it's kind of a power hog. So, mm-hmm. you know, and... <laughs> you mean splitting hydrogen and and oxygen atoms is a power hog. <laughs> splitting water. Yeah. It's yeah. funny how we're always splitting things. We start with splitting wood. water. Yeah. You know, now we're talking about splitting water, splitting atoms, except if it's fusion, in which case we're putting them back together. Try doing that with wood. Anyway. <laughs> Smash. Smash. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I, th- I think there's some potential, right? All those electrolyzers, like you said. But today, we're all sitting around waiting. Yeah, well, you know, maybe maybe in this 10 to 15 years, maybe SMRs will have matured and, you know, they'll have economies of scale from production. I mean, mm-hmm. Viramana does have some counterpoints to that. But <laughs> well, like I mean, like you like you said earlier, it's like you can argue both sides of this all day long. And then Mars, right? Maybe we maybe we power Mars with those SMRs. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's absolutely true. I used to think it was going to be solar panels on Mars. <laughs> One word, dust. yeah we're probably not gonna power mars with solar just Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i think there's a lot of credence to space travel and nuclear energy and well of course that's all the all the sci-fi stuff is all the the reactors and and you know mars i think there's a lot of credence there space travel in general you need a lot of energy and you need it there's there's already like some satellites right that do run on these very very small nuclear micro reactors uh, yeah they're just these tiny little things and they'll run forever sure i mean honestly solar works really well in space we kind of moved to solar for that one i mean you've got no clouds <laughs> there's just there's a few advantages to there but you know let's go back to mars mars is a hard place to live even if we get there so my question is What's happening today with nukes on Earth? Actually, Christian, our last guest is going to give us that information. I uh, met him when I I picked a very polite disagreement on a chat forum with a um, 
an en- at an energy conference uh, in, in the virtual world, and he was gracious enough to engage, and we had a good conversation. His name is Chris Volopis, and he is formerly of Scott Madden's energy practice, which and he held that role for like 20 years, but... It took a while for me and Christian to get this episode going. So in that time, he's semi-retired and he was the co-leader of the firm's nuclear consulting practice. And he was really candid about us in the context of the state of nuclear today. Yeah, I'd have to say that, you know, the nuclear industry today is successful but challenged. There's a significant risk that some of the existing plants are going to close And there's lukewarm support for extending the life of some of these plants or building new ones. And the reason I think it's it's important is it would be a major hit to our ability to decarbonize the nation's electric system. Maybe for those uh, who are listening who aren't experts in nuclear, let me just give a little background. Worldwide, there's around 440 reactors with about 54 under construction. In the U.S., we have about 100 reactors operating with two under construction in about 60 locations. And for decades, these reactors have generated 20% of our nation's electricity. So, yeah, following up on that, about 10 years ago, I feel like it was a lot of talk about a nuclear renaissance that, you know, nuclear was poised to really take over. Uh, and to become a much larger part of the U.S. energy mix. What happened to that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in a word, fracking uh, happened. Because of natural gas fracking, it was so wildly successful, it drove gas prices down from highs of $12 a million BTUs to now around $2 I mean, cut in sixth the the cost of gas, and that's driven power prices down from over 50 to 20. Um, it's tough to compete against uh, a competitor like that, uh, and demand has turned flat to declining. We just don't need some of the capacity that we thought we did. Um, and then, as we all know, the clean power plan and carbon pricing at the federal level fizzled out. Um, And finally, the good news, I mean, of the four, probably the positive thing is the cost improvements of wind and solar have happened and grabbed a lot of the attention. So, you know, I think you might think what happened to the Renaissance? How did nuclear, uh, you know, fail to capitalize? I think nuclear really got caught in the change of conditions uh, more than anything. And as a result, you know, the 29 that were initially planned, we're really left with two reactors that are going to end up being built. So let's let's jump back here a second for what's been going, what's going on right now with the new U.S. nuclear fleet. I, I feel like we've watched about 10 percent of the United States nuclear reactors close over the last decade, and there's another 10 percent slated for closure currently. Uh, can we expect these trends to continue? And what do you think this means for decarbonization? Well, let me start with what does it mean for decarbonization, because I think that's the important part, is it means at a minimum we're going to needlessly delay deep and rapid decarbonization. We can talk maybe later about new nuclear, but for the operating plants, losing that carbon-free energy takes us a step backwards. There are some that argue we may eventually get to zero carbon without nuclear, but most Serious climate discussions 
focus that we've got a near term window uh, that if we miss that, we may lose uh, the long term gain. So we've got to drive it down soon and we got to drive it down steep. Um, and and also we may lose the industry long term if we can't keep the nuclear industry sustainable in the near term. Uh, the the ability to participate in the long term may be jeopardized. So we still have 60 percent of our power being produced by fossil fuels. It's critical that we have nuclear operating plants in the near term or we risk taking two steps forward and two steps back. Can you know, can we expect the trend to continue, you know, without changes to carbon policy? And without some support from climate advocates, I'm afraid, yeah, this trend will continue. You know, again, if we have some sort of carbon support, nuclear may be able to compete against gas. But natural gas continues to be cheap, and there's little prospect for near-term carbon price support. And what I mean by near-term, not just years from now, there are announcements month-to-month of plants that are going to close. So I think it's an important issue. Chris, you mentioned that it's important to stabilize some of these uh, nuclear plants to ensure that they're not closing so that we can continue to benefit from their zero emission energy as as we are decarbonizing the grid here. Mom, I'm curious to know, at what point are you throwing good money after bad uh, in terms of uh, keeping some of these reactors running? And, and at what point do you think it might be better to send some of that money, uh, some of that funding to renewable sources that can um, that can ramp up faster? Well, the fastest ramp up of clean energy is the energy you have right now. And, you know, nuclear has been there for decades, pumping out the majority of our clean energy. And where it's particularly challenged are in the competitive markets where a little bit of margin can cause a plant to close. And we're not talking about high levels of subsidies. And some states have stepped in, uh, Illinois, Ohio, uh, New York, because if you look at the numbers, it is the cheapest way to get to zero carbon is to maintain the plants that we do have. I think there's more debate over investment in new nuclear plants, but it's it, to me, it's really a no brainer to keep these plants we have. We, you know, all the all the subsidies to date for wind and solar there in 2019, they were 10 percent of all of the generation of the United States. If you want to decarbonize, that means you've got to take everything we've done to date and multiply it by 10 if you get rid of these nuclear plants and we're just talking about decarbonizing the electric system. So the electric system is one third of the carbon of the country. If we want to then decarbonize transportation and end use, that means we got to multiply by 10 and then double or triple it again. And it just, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me to let the vast majority of our clean energy disappear in the near term when the when the cuts are so critical right now. 
so Chris, I, I want to push back a little bit on that because, you know, 10 years ago, the cost of new solar was around $200 a megawatt hour. Now we're seeing contracts at under $30 a megawatt hour. So I, I think the claim that it would cost an equivalent amount of subsidies to continue to increase the market share of wind and solar, uh, you know, given the fact that the costs have fallen what, sevenfold in the case of solar, maybe by half in the case of or more in the case of wind. How can you justify the claim that we would still need such levels of subsidization? Oh, I wasn't saying that we need the levels of subsidization that we have in the past. But what I am saying is that if you want rapid effect, it makes no sense to lose what you have, particularly if I mean, these are operating plants. They are they are on the edge of competitiveness. The the we can we can talk though about the numbers that you, you that are often thrown around are the levelized cost of energy numbers for these technologies. And while they're interesting, they're not the whole story because what renewables face is the need the cost of balancing that energy as well. Um, and so to provide energy across the day, you need either natural gas or batteries or other things. So as we go to very high levels of penetration, the simple number of the levelized cost of energy is not, you know, the full story. I, you know, and Chris, I'm with you when we're talking about an existing plants open to decarbonize the grid because we really only have less than 10 years to make a significant impact on the carbon that we're emitting to the atmosphere if we're going to uh, really address uh, climate change in a meaningful way. But I'm, I'm still uh, not convinced that we should be spending billions of dollars to build, build new reactors when they take decades to build. You know, you said yourself we don't have a supply chain in place, much more expensive than, you know, what can be done in other places. And I'm, I'm, I, I just, I have a concern that, that funds are being, um, that are funds, funds will go down a black hole, very valuable funds that could be put towards um, uh, building uh, some, you know, solar, renewable energy that can generate power uh, now very quickly uh, to, to help mitigate climate change. I mean, if that's what we're talking about, decarbonizing the grid, getting carbon out of the atmosphere, and changing how we produce our energy, um, I, I, it's a hard pill for me to swallow to spend billions of dollars and wait 10 years. And, and maybe, maybe what I might do is, you know, interpret this a little bit different of should we be going at every option that we have Yes, um, th that's my view. We have so much room to make up. Um, we need to be going at it all. Um, you know, remember if we, you know, if we took nuclear out of the equation, it makes it, it, it the existing ones. It makes it that much more difficult. But still, um, yeah. And I'm not talking about taking the existing ones offline. I'm talking uh, about spending new money on new plants, and which to me feels very risky. Well. I think the the issue here is risky in terms which is which is the greater risk of not doing something and needing it and versus doing something about it and being in a position to implement it. I mean, a decade can go pretty fast. Uh, you know, my my point about the UAE 
um, if we get behind it, we can do this um, and, and we can build these. Um, and I think there's also the question about the viability of a purely renewable system as you get into greater and greater penetrations. Um, you know, many have done studies that show it can be done. Uh, it, it, it's not clear it, ha- it, it, it has been done yet. Um, many still rely on gas or imports and exports from their neighbors. And, and I, I think there is some issues in terms of we'll have to be pouring money into batteries or pouring money into gas to balance off some of these. So I, I think there's risks in not having a diversity of generation sources as we move forward. There, you know, there are analyses, recent ones come out that have, that conclude that a system with a combination of carbon-free resources like nuclear along with renewables gets us to zero emissions at the lowest cost. So I guess I would, in a way, agree with some of your thinking, which is in the near term, we need to save every bit we have. We need to be investing to be ready to implement nuclear and perhaps it's the small log, small modular at the right time. But the only thing I take issue is we need to start pumping some money into it and making some commitments or it, it will be another couple of decades before that nuclear comes in. So, um, the, the, the timing may very well be longer than we'd like for nuclear to come in, but it will be even longer if we don't get behind and start supporting it. Sure, I think that's a fair, you know, that, that's a fair assessment that if we're going to do this, we need to invest in it. But to go back to something you said there about the, you know, the need for nuclear in high renewable penetration scenarios or something like it, um, you know, we have, I don't think the options are just batteries and gas. Uh, hydro has been balancing very high levels of renewable energy in Scandinavia for some time. And obviously that only works with some kinds of hydro. But now what we have is we have many utilities in the United States investing in uh, plants that are going to be burning hydrogen and that are going to shift over from gas to hydrogen. So it seems like we we have multiple options. But... You know, in, in in New England in the middle of winter, it may not be, you know, you may not be able to do something like that. So I think what we have to do is not cut anything off, but continue to look at what kind of system we can have in the future. And I guess my only point would be nuclear needs to be recognized for its clean energy value. And then let's let the, the economics fall where they may, which gets kind of to my underlying belief it's not that you know if, if if you threw nuclear hydrogen solar wind and and had to come up with the the best option it would do well if you threw natural gas without carbon pricing it won't it, it just won't i mean chris i, I want to get back to what you said about you know nuclear having some clean energy value i think it's important for us to make sure we're if we're we're being clear uh because I don't consider nuclear a clean energy because there is a significant waste problem. I consider it a zero carbon energy source, but I don't consider it a clean energy source. And I think that's, you know, the waste issue is something that we haven't discussed yet, which is still a problem. And granted, 
you know, plants have, you know, figured out how to store that, but ongoing, it's, it's an issue. And it's, you know, you don't have nuclear waste when you, when you build renewable energy. Yeah. Let's maybe we just clear up the definition of clean energy and, and change it to zero carbon here for, for these, you know, my definition when I, you know, on this conversation of clean energy is low carbon, zero carbon energy. I mean, that is the existential environmental issue of our day. I mean, by far, it, it, it is the big issue, you know, and if we can come away with people hearing this webcast and understanding that nuclear is zero carbon, that's enough for me uh, today. Um, and it's such an issue that the European unions, I was reading recently, they're under pressure to make the proclamation that nuclear is low carbon. And come on, it, it it is. You can say it. It's and I appreciate you saying it. It is low carbon. But you know, there's still surveys out there where people, a large percentage of people, believe it emits carbon. So again, if you take away one thing, it is carbon free. Now, you know, inter, introducing the nuclear waste is debatable. And, you know, to me, you know, coming from a, a nuclear background, it to me it's a distraction. You know, for two reasons. One. You know, no form of energy creates no waste. And and two, the issues with nuclear waste are more political and economic than a real barrier to implementing nuclear. Wow, a lot to digest there. I'm not sure where to start. Well, let me ask you this, Christian. To nuclear or not to nuclear? Uh, this is not a simple yes or no answer. <laughs> Are, are we talking about existing nuclear power plants or are we talking about new nuclear power plants? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I definitely see the benefit to keeping existing nuclear on. We've built it. We paid for it. It doesn't emit carbon. Let's keep them running. Yep. Um, until they're not safe enough to keep running. Which right. I, and I think that's right. the mainstream consensus of the climate and energy community in the United States, is to keep the existing plants online for as long as is feasible. But, you know, that's a totally different conversation in Europe, not just Germany, which gets a lot of the press, but Belgium, Spain and Switzerland also have nuclear phase out schedules mm -hmm. or plans, I should say, mm -hmm. not always schedules. Other nations mm -hmm. like Finland and the UK are moving ahead with nuclear power. Finland just started up a new reactor in January at one of their existing power plants. Mm -hmm. And then what, Japan, right? They're phasing it out too, right? Oh, Japan. I feel like we've gone back and forth. They're like, no nuclear yeah. power after Fukushima. And then, well, we'll start yeah. some reactors. and. Japan has significant problems. You know, they're a very densely populated island. And I think if you're going to make an argument for the energy density attribute of nuclear, it applies mm -hmm. more to Japan than any other nation of its size, because there's no, mm -hmm. there's no wires connecting them to Korea or China. They have to produce all the electricity on that island. And that, that's a it's really, true. it's a sort of a uniquely difficult position for a nation as large as Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what? I, that's why I totally get it. It's like, if you need that energy density, um, nuclear is the way to go. Uh, but I'm not like, I don't like it when people call it clean energy yeah. because it's not clean. There's waste involved uh, that we don't know what to do with. Absolutely. And you know, it's still a very contentious issue in Japan. Japan, mm -hmm. you know, because they suffered through Fukush the Fukushima disaster. I think any place mm -hmm. that's had firsthand experience with one of these major disasters is a place where you're going to find a whole lot of resistance to nuclear power. People forget that, you know, the German and the, the nuclear phase out 
really accelerated after Fukushima, but they, you know, Germans have been wanting to do that ever since they had radioactive clouds come over their nation from Chernobyl. So mm-hmm. that's just, you know, that's the reality is, is that places that have suffered one of these serious disasters are not keen on continuing this. But France, no. Macron just reversed his position, and now the nation plans to deploy up to 14 next-generation reactors. So it's just, it's such a different conversation depending where you are in the world. Yeah, the devil is really in the details. And of course, like, there's all these subsidies that are still going to keeping these plants open. At what point, you know, do you, are you throwing, throwing good money over bad? And, and I appreciate Chris's insight on that. Like we said, given the urgency of the IPCC and the eight years that we have to make the difference, I mean, is that really a great way to spend money? And yeah, and could a lot of the money that the federal government spends be used in a better way? I know, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> so I guess that, you know, that is a question is, is the money that we're spending on nuclear, is that something we could say, well, that could be used on renewables? Or is that money that we could say, you know, there's all these people who say we should be funding both adequately and richly. Mm-hmm. And what about the future? Mm-hmm. Because renewables can generally mm-hmm. meet the level of electricity demand that we have today, but right. throw in EVs, throw in heat pumps, yep. Throw in making hydrogen, hydrogen. that's mm-hmm. going to take a lot more power. And most nations don't exactly have space constraints, but there is competition for the use of land already in a number of places. And, mm-hmm. you know, could these nuclear, new nuclear designs meet some of that need? Yeah. And I think, you know, the way to think about it, I think with my, my clean tech messaging hat on, is that advanced nuclear technology, it's a solution without a problem. But, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, we're really going to need nuclear and it's going to be playing this really powerful, pun intended, role in our clean energy mix. And so I think if we get it, we get a chance to sort of shift our focus, like renewables and, and nuclear, they don't have to compete. Like we get a chance to deploy both and we can build a clean energy future understanding that renewables are going to, you know, carry the lift today and nuclear is going to carry the lift long term. Yeah. And, you know, that is assuming that these designs will be ready and cost effective in the 2030s or 2040s. You know, Uh we're assuming that. And that's still unproven. You know, it's, you know, the joke. (laughs) They're always 20 years (laughs) out. (laughs) And, you know, if oh, we have 20 goodness. years, might we have better solutions? You know, yeah. one of the things that we've been talking about is, uh, that I've been learning about is hydrogen-powered power plants, where you basically replace the natural gas with hydrogen, and they run a steam turbine. You know, again, that mm-hmm. old-timey way. All those miracle batteries that just, you know, could store power very cheaply. Yeah. We just simply might have solutions by the time that these nuclear power designs come around that are better, cheaper, and cleaner. I think, I don't know, if you look at it on a global sort of political science scale, nuclear is never going to go away because we have weapons programs and we need that institutional knowledge to be carried from generation to generation. So you need people who are educated in the science of nuclear energy and during peacetime, energy production is the way to maintain that knowledge base to keep these uh, technologies fun. You know, it's fascinating that you say that because I remember being at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Future of Energy Summit 
right after Trump was elected, and or I guess it was a few months after Trump was elected, because Rick Perry was already head of the DOE, and he came out and he he basically said that he said the thing that he's not supposed to say that people don't say. He says we need nuclear power because we need to train engineers for our weapons program. So, you know, I think from the perspective of governments, yes, I mean. As a human being, I'm I'm having a hard time with the idea that we need to have nuclear weapons. And I, I understand yeah. that they're hard to get rid of, but I guess I can still hold out some hope that we can figure out a way to get rid of them. And yeah, you're right. But you're right. The nuclear industry isn't going to go away until we fully decommissioned our nuclear weapons. So it's it makes total sense that, you know, billions upon billions of dollars just like appear out of nowhere to fund this industry at a government level. Like, yeah. I, I get it. You know, yeah. So I mean, Lisa Ann, we've heard the case for nuclear. We've heard the case against nuclear. What do you think about the case for nuclear now, today? I feel like it still holds a lot of promise, and so I I would like us as a society to continue that development effort. I would prefer that it not be at the disadvantage of renewable energy that could really help us in the short term. Yeah. So you'd say there's a place for nuclear, but it's in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, for, for me, I've gone from being anti-nuclear to being more skeptical. And, you know, I really went into this episode saying, convince me. And at the end of it, I'm not sold. But, you know, yeah. in the future, who knows? There are possibilities, but they're, they are just possibilities. I don't know. You know, that's my problem. I'm a show me, show me the money kind of guy. Like, tell me, tell me it's actually working because I've been burned <laughs> on so much tech that didn't pan out. But that's another story. But that's the history of technology, and that's sort of the, that's kind of what keeps the whole aspect of, of the future of technology kind of interesting and, and suspenseful, right? Because you really just don't know what's going to pan out or not. Um, but, you know, Earthlings, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think the future of nuclear power is, and what role do you think it has to play in the energy mix? And you can tell us by following us on Twitter at, at EarthlingsPod. Or on LinkedIn at Earthlings Podcast, or send us an email at hosts at earthlingspodcast.com. And until next time, this is Christian Roseland. And I'm Lisa Ann Pinkerton. May your travels on this blue green space flower greet you with all the information that you need to make the best decisions today for our collective future. <laughs>